Mark chapter 11, verse 27, through Mark chapter 12, verse 12. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Mark chapter 11, as we just read, is where we're at, beginning in verse 27. Uh, we've been working our way through the gospel of Mark uh, for the greater part of this year. And the gospel of Mark is, is really just a biography, a narrative biography about Jesus Christ about who he is, about his life and mission on earth, and about why he matters more than anyone in human history. And so when we're working through the gospel of Mark, our sort of the lens that we've been working through is we want to really get to know uh, who is the real Jesus. Who is Jesus and why does he matter? And early on in this book, we read about a group of people that have been following Jesus, his, his whole ministry. There's this group of people that sort of have the appearance of godliness on the outside, but they have no intention of actually following him, of actually submitting their lives to him in any sort of real sense. They're the ones that have been sort of like creeping on Jesus, following him around and trying to get him killed because they, they perceive that he's a threat to their power and a threat to their influence. And now... At the end of Mark chapter 11, we're coming into the last week of Jesus' life and ministry on earth. And he has another run-in with this, this sort of group of haters, right? He has another run-in with this group of critics. And we're going to see that even when they reject him, Jesus still pursues them. 
that his grace is patient and persistent. And so we're going to walk through three points today. First, we're going to look at the realm of his authority, the realm of Jesus's authority. Secondly, we're going to look at the reason that we tend to reject his authority. And third, we're going to look at the, re- the resolve or the persistence of his grace in light of that. And so let's look at that first one, the realm of Jesus's authority. Turn to chapter 11, verse 27 uh, with me, and, and, and we're going to read it. Now, what we're, what we're about to read is happening, remember, in the final days leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection, right? Like commentators and theologians have called this Passion Week, right? Because this is the last week of Jesus' life. It's the last week of his ministry that, that leading up to his death on the cross. And we saw that that he rode in on Sunday, that he's reforming the temple on Monday, and here we are now on Tuesday. Chapter 11, verse 27 is Tuesday, and he's confronted by this group of, of critics. Now read verse 27 with me. It says, and they, this is talking about Jesus and his disciples, it says, they came again to Jerusalem. And as he, Jesus, was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Now, we'll stop right there. What is it that that they're challenging him on? What is it that they're challenging Jesus on? Remember, just a day earlier, Jesus was in the temple, And he was confronting these very leaders on their corruption because they had turned the temple into the temple, which is where God was worshipped in Jerusalem. They turned the temple into this nationalistic symbol instead of making this temple light to the world, which is what it was supposed to be. And so Jesus comes in and he flips tables. He's angry. He's upset. Like this wasn't Jesus meek and mild. This was Jesus meek and wild, right? He just comes in like this, this beast of a lion and just starts turning over tables. And then we, saw, we see now here that this is the next day. This is Tuesday now. And we see here that that group of leaders that he challenged, it says here the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they come now to confront Jesus on his actions and his words. Now, these are like the high-ranking religious leaders. These are the guys that would have like the book deals and the, and, the, and, the, and the huge followings today. These are the guys that like CNN and Fox News would call when they need like a pastor's perspective, right? Like these are the, 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 the respected religious leaders of the day. And so these guys, they roll in and they confront Jesus in the temple and they say, hey, who gave you the right to do this? Who gave you to tell us what to do in the temple, to teach the way that you're teaching? Who gave you the right to do this? Which honestly on the surface is probably a fair question, right? Like if somebody walked into your house and flipped over your table, I mean, you might say something like, by what authority do you do these things, right? Like that would be a fair question. But this group, this this group of guys, they had something kind of more sinister going on beneath the surface in their hearts. You see, they were, what, what they were doing is they were hoping to catch Jesus with this question. They were hoping to expose him as somebody who had no real authority. When they asked, Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? They were hoping to reveal that he really had no authority at all. You see, in that day, in that day, if a preacher or a rabbi or teacher had any real authority, 
then they would, they would, like, they would reference this rabbi that they know, or they would re- reference, or they would quote, like, that tradition, right? Like, you were expected as a preacher or teacher to be able to list all of your endorsements, right? The greater the list of endorsements on your LinkedIn profile, the greater authority that you had. Right, and we, I mean, we 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 see some some uh, cultural like uh, parallels to that today, right? Like when you're applying for a new job, like you you, you want to give references, right? When we were planting this church and I was raising money for this church, people wanted to know what's the church that's sending you, where did you get trained, who's got your back, are you part of a network or an association or denomination? Like they want to know who 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 backed us, and that's what they're getting at when they ask this question. When they asked Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things, that's the kind of answer they were looking for. And you see, for these religious sort of like elitists, who they subscribe to this, this, this old uh, sort of traditional book of law called the Mishnah, which was this collection of, of Jewish traditions and, and, and laws outside of the Bible. Uh, they were cultural traditions. And, and one of the rules in this, this collection in the Mishnah said that if a prophet or if a teacher was ever caught appealing to, to what would be considered a false authority, then that prophet could be executed. That teacher could be executed. And so when these guys, when they come to Jesus and they say, hey, by what authority do you have? Are you you saying these things? This wasn't just a question. They were on the hunt for like a legal way to execute Jesus. And so when you look at it through the reality of that lens, you recognize that this is a tense moment, right? Right? This is a tense moment, and I want you to see how Jesus responds now in in verse 29. It says, Jesus said to them, you know what, I I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you about what authority I do these things. He says, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me, he says again. You can sort of like feel the intensity in Jesus' voice, Right? You can feel the intensity. You can almost see it in this, in this scene. Like Jesus is in the temple, which by the way is these guys, like it's their place of work. And instead of answering their question directly, he gains control of the conversation. He asks them a deeper question about John the Baptist. And he says to them, he says, answer me. And then he says, answer me again. He's twice, which is sort of the first century Hebrew way of saying like, come at me, bro. Right? Like when Jesus asked this deeper question, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man, what he's doing is he's drawing their attention to to, to John the Baptist. Now, the reason that's that's significant is we met John the Baptist in Mark chapter 1 when we started this. And for those of you that weren't with us, we, we, we saw that John the Baptist, he was kind of like this eccentric personality. He was this eccentric dude. He was clothed in camel skin. He had this sort of semi-vegan diet of like honey and locusts. He lived a super minimalist lifestyle in the desert, and he had tons and tons of followers, basically living the millennial dream, right? Now, all of that, all of that about John the Baptist was prophesied in the Old Testament, 
The Old Testament prophesied about John the Baptist and said that he would look this way, he would dress this way, he would speak this way, and he would be a prophet of God specifically tasked with introducing the life and ministry of the Messiah Jesus. This is the guy, John the Baptist, the reason we call him that is he's the guy that baptized Jesus in Mark chapter 1. And so, Jesus draws their attention away from him. He talks about John the Baptist, and because it was widely known that one, John the Baptist had a ministry that was empowered by God himself, and two, I mean, John's authority, it came from God and not from them, not from these religious leaders. And so Jesus, this is his way, by drawing their attention to John the Baptist, this is his way of saying, look, if you're attacking me, then you're attacking John the Baptist who said that I'm the Messiah. You're attacking him and you're attacking the authority that he got from God himself. And his critics, these religious leaders, they don't really know how to respond to Jesus when he says this. I mean, look at it in verse 31. It says, these leaders, they discussed it with one another. They kind of went off to the side and they, you know, they start huddling and discussing with one another. And, and, and they, they say, well, you know, if we say that his, John the Baptist's authority came from heaven, then he, Jesus, will just say, why then did you not believe him? What he's referring to is he's saying, why, then, then, then why didn't you believe what John the Baptist said about me being the Messiah? And then he continues, but then they're talking among each other, and, and, and they say, but, if, if, but shall we say from, that his authority comes from, from man? And it says that they were afraid of the people for all the people in the area. They held that John really was a prophet. And so these religious leaders, they ask Jesus, and they say, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you what authority I do these things. This is Jesus' sort of drop the mic moment in this passage, right? He's, he's showing them that, look, if you, if, if that, that he's telling them, he's revealing to them that he, as a Messiah, has divine authority. The same kind of authority that John the Baptist had, but greater. Jesus is revealing to them that when he's speaking, there you know, they're like, hey, by what authority can you say these things? Jesus is showing that when he speaks, he speaks as the Son of God, as a word of God in the flesh. What is the realm of Jesus' authority? Jesus has all authority. Total authority, whole authority. He's the one who even had authority to speak about what was right in the temple and what was not. And he spoke again and again. We've seen all throughout the Gospel of Mark, right in front of them. He's teaching them and challenging them what it means to truly belong to God, what it really meant to advance God's kingdom on earth. But these leaders, they didn't like what he had to say, so they questioned his authority. And that's what's happening here. What about you? What about you this morning? Is there some area of life? Is there some area of biblical teaching where you don't want to acknowledge the full realm of Jesus' authority? You'll give him your Sundays, but not your weeknights. You'll give him your hands, the things you do with your hands, but you won't truly give him your heart. 
Is there some area where he's, he's sort of speaking into, where, where in, in the scriptures, where Jesus is speaking into what it means to worship him, what it means to belong to him, belong to the church, what it means to live a life of meaning and mission and purpose, what it means to have faith in him or to trust him and follow him, and maybe you don't like what he has to say, and so you start to question his authority. What is that for you? You see, Jesus, though, he doesn't want to allow us to stay neutral with him. You either have to follow him or outright reject him like these leaders are. And so Jesus here in this text, he presses in to sort of peel back the layers of what's really going on in their hearts. He peels back the layers to really reveal what goes on in our hearts Why, when we reject Jesus to reveal why we would ever reject him at all. And he does that through a parable. And this leads us to our second point. I want us to look at now the reason that we reject his authority. Here's the reason we reject his authority. We're going to look at it in the next 12 verses. Bear with me. I'm going to read the whole chunk of text, and then we'll walk through it. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Jesus now Remember, his goal is he wants to reveal why they reject him. And he says in verse 1, he began to speak to them in parables. And Jesus says, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress, and he built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him. They beat this servant and sent him away empty-handed. And so again, the owner sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And so the owner sent another, and to him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. Verse 6 says, he still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, This owner, he sent him to them. He sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And so they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Jesus asked them. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And then Jesus says in verse 10, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is, it is marvelous in our eyes. And they, this is talking about the religious leaders now that Jesus is confronting. Verse 12, it says they, these religious leaders, were seeking to arrest Jesus, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. And so they left him, they left Jesus, and they went away. Now, Bible scholars and commentators, they they often consider this parable, this story. Jesus often described his teachings on the kingdom in stories and parables like this. And Bible scholars will will, 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 uh, often consider this uh, sort of the most brutal and intense parable uh, that, that Jesus told. So I want us to unpack what's happening here. Look, in verse 1, it says that a man planted a vineyard. Now, You need to know that throughout the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, in the Psalms and in the prophets, there's this reference to like a vineyard imagery again and again. 
And you need to know that in the Old Testament, the Psalms and Prophets, a vineyard is a word picture, sort of an archetype of the Old Testament nation of Israel. And really the, the clearest, sort of most common Old Testament uh, passage, like sort of vineyard picture, is in Isaiah chapter 5. Now, bear with me. I want us to read just two verses in Isaiah 5. Read them with me. It says, uh, God says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill, and he dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but instead it yielded wild grapes. In other words, it yielded bad fruit. Now, what's the significance here? You see, in Isaiah 5, what we just read, God tells a story here. If you read it, he's telling the story of a man who planted a vineyard. And a man who planted a vineyard and gave it all that it needed to grow, invested into it to give it all that it needed to thrive. He cleared out the rocks for fertile ground. He built a watchtower. He set up walls and hedges to sort of protect it. He put vine dressers there to tend to it. But in the end, it says at the end of verse 2 that it only yielded wild grapes. It only yielded bad fruit that you couldn't even use. Now, fast forward to Mark chapter 12. Jesus is telling a, a parable that sort of parallels this, right? You guys notice that? The religious leaders that he's confronting, they knew this story back in Isaiah chapter 5. They studied it. They taught it. It was a popular passage for them. They memorized it. It was up on their refrigerators, right? Posters in their garage, on their coffee mugs. They knew this passage of Scripture. And here's Jesus telling a parable to say, look, what God warned about in Isaiah chapter 5 with the vineyard, that's happening right now. That's happening right now with you. Jesus is saying to them, God is the vineyard owner in this parable, and I am the son. And you are the bad fruit spoken about in Isaiah. You are the bad fruit, the wild grapes, because you don't realize that you're rejecting God himself by rejecting me. Jesus is clearly throwing mad shade here, right? He's criticizing them. He is tearing them apart, showing them how they missed the royal biblical point. That's why verse 12, it says that they wanted to arrest them because he per they perceived, it says, that he was speaking against them. Now, there's something about this parable that, 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 that cuts deep into their hearts causes them to respond in this way. What was it about this parable that made it so uncomfortable? You see, Jesus, by basically calling them bad fruit, he was exposing the deep and the irrational hatred that they had toward him. I mean, when you read the story about the owner and the tenants and how servant after servant, they keep beating and killing and shaming these servants, you're just like, man, this is so irrational. Why do they hate him so much? Jesus is using this parable to expose that these religious leaders had a deep and irrational hatred toward him. 
I mean, verse one, it says the owner blessed the tenants with a beautiful vineyard. It was the owner's investment. It was the owner's land. It was the owner's field. Their job was just to tend for it, tend to it. They get to live in it. But they have to tend to it. And in verse 2, it says, At harvest, he sent a servant to collect some of the fruit, which, by the way, it's his fruit, right? He's the owner. He sent a servant to take some of his fruit, which, by taking some of the fruit, implies that they get to keep some of it too, right? Which is pretty gracious, you, you would think. Typical thing to do back then. But they kill that servant. And so he sends another servant. They kill that servant. So he sends another and another. And finally, he sends his son. The parable in Mark 12 says he sends his beloved son. And when Jesus uses those words, this should remind us of Mark chapter 1 and in Mark chapter 8 when God's voice comes down in heaven and says, this is my son, my beloved son of whom I am well pleased. Jesus is clearly pointing out that he is the son in this story. And in verse 8, what do these tenants do to the son? They kill him too. They reject him too. They treat him shamefully too. Jesus, by telling this story, by telling this parable, is getting their attention. He's getting the attention of these religious leaders with abiding and troubling contrast. He's contrasting an owner who, on the one hand, is loving and generous towards his tenants, and on the other hand, his tenants who have nothing but hatred in their hearts towards this owner. Why did they hate him so much? Why did they hate the owner so much? Why did they hate Jesus so much? Jesus is trying to get to the heart of that with this story. Why did these religious leaders, why did they hate him so much? What was the heart at the heart of their rejecting him? The answer is that their hatred was ultimately driven by an intense desire to be the one with power and control. Their hatred, the reason that the religious leaders hated Jesus so much is because they were driven by a desire for power, for privilege, for control. You see, the vineyard, it belonged to the owner. But the tenants in the story, they were acting like the vineyard belonged to who? To themselves. Like they were the owners. They were so hell-bent on being owners that they said, let's kill the son and the inheritance will be ours. That's not how that works, right? But they're so blinded by their desire for power and control, they felt entitled to what never really ever belonged to them. And you see, this entire passage is Jesus' sharpest attack against these religious leaders. He's standing in a vineyard. And around the temple. Like the temple actually had like uh, 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 statues and embroideries of grapes and vines like all around the temple yard area. So he's standing there in this proverbial vineyard. He's telling the religious leaders through this parable of a vineyard that they are like these tenants. And he's exposing, he's, he's, he's attacking just them deep in the heart of why they really reject him. He's showing them that it was their job as the leaders of the temple, the religious leaders of the temple, and the religious leaders of the people that govern, to, to, to really govern Israel by God's word, 
not by their self-made traditions. That it was their job to advance God's kingdom, not their own self-made kingdoms. This is one of the reasons that, that Jesus wasn't popular amongst these leaders. This is one of the reasons that they hated him, because they, he disrupted their ownership mentality. He disrupted their ownership mentality. He showed them what a mission of stewardship was like. You see, they were using Old Testament religion to puff themselves up when Jesus comes to fulfill the Old Testament religion by serving others, even sinners. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus doing this again and again and again. And every single time, these religious leaders are there, and they don't like it. When Jesus touched a leper who they considered was a social outcast, when he ate and sat down with sinners and tax collectors who they considered to be moral outcasts. And here he's talking about inviting Gentiles, non-Jewish people into the temple, into the vineyard. These tenants did not like that. Rather than be stewards, they wanted to be owners. And you see, when we dig into this passage, we see that there's a broader message for us to look at our own lives, to dig into our own hearts, to recognize that our time, our talents, our treasures, the breath in our lungs, the ideas in our heads, the creativity in our bones, the relationships in our spheres, we need to realize like, that like, all of that is given to you not for you, but for God and for others. We're stewards of those things, not owners of those things. Jesus says, you need to realize that you are a tenant farmer. You're a steward of what you've been given. All those things, they don't belong to us. They ultimately belong to God. And everything that you have, all that you own, everything that is you consider yours is ultimately a gift, a gift of grace. How are you using these things for the mission of God and for the advancing of his kingdom? We're called to be stewards. He's cutting to the heart of what the difference is between really an owner mentality and a steward mentality. An owner mentality versus a steward mentality. You want to know what the difference is between an owner mentality and a steward mentality? When an owner says, I earned my, my time, I earned my talents, my, my treasures, and I'll use it for my own purposes. The steward, on the other hand, says, God provided me with time, talent, and treasure, and I'm going to prayerfully consider how to use them for his purposes. I'm going to search his word to see how to use it for his purposes. An owner says, I'll do things by my wisdom, but a steward says, I'm going to do things according to God's will, to his word. An owner says, I'm here to, to, to take from others, to oppress others, a steward says, I'm here to do good for others, to lift others up, even if it brings me down. You see, the Bible says that apart from the Spirit of God, that we are all prone to think like owners rather than stewards. On the one hand, we're all wired with this sense that, that like we're all tenants, that nothing's really ours. But on the other hand, it's like we hate that we're tenants and not owners. And so we kind of repress that. How many of you guys are familiar with the, the, the philosopher Nietzsche? 
right? Nietzsche, probably, I mean, really well-known, like recent, uh, relatively speaking, uh, philosophers. He kind of lived with this classic tenant mentality, right? This classic tenant mentality, this owner mentality. He said, you know what? We don't need God. He, he's the one who, who made the famous the phrase, God is dead. He says, we've killed God, which is his way of saying that we've sort of outgrown our need to believe in or follow a God. We have autonomy and the right and privilege to determine our own destin- destiny centered on, on ourselves, right? But Nietzsche was actually, uh, interesting, he was actually an honest atheist towards the end of his life. He said, look, I don't believe that there's a God. There is no God. God is dead. And therefore, since God is dead and there is no God, there is no transcendent purpose. There is no moral sense of right and wrong. Everything that you work for is for nothing. Everything that you labor for is ultimately meaningless. He was at least honest with that. And this thought This sort of like nihilism uh, drove him to madness. He spent the whole last decade of his life in an asylum. And you see, that's what makes the ownership mentality ultimately bad news. That's what makes the tenant mentality ultimately bad news. Because the moment we take, we make ourselves the owners, try to find life, meaning, and purpose in and of ourselves, rather than answering to the one who made us, then life, meaning, purpose, and all that just starts to unravel around us. We've got nothing solid to stand on. I love this. Uh, it's not in my notes here, but it just reminded me of this, uh, this, this quote. It's probably my favorite quote from G.K. Chesterton, where he says, look, the, the, the purpose uh, of an open mind is like the purpose of an open mouth. It's to close itself on something solid. You see, without a steward mentality, then life, meaning, purpose, it just starts to unravel around us. And it's depressing. It's hopeless. It's void of beauty. That was Nietzsche's conclusion. So then what hope is it that we have, right? Kind of a dark note to end on point number two. Like, what hope then do we have? If we're prone to fall into this owner mentality, if there's a sense in us that be apart from the Spirit of God, because of our sinful nature, that we're prone to have really an owner mentality rather than a steward mentality, then what hope do we have? And that leads us into our third and final point where we see the resolve, the persistence of God's grace. The resolve of God's grace. You see, why does Jesus tell this parable? Why does he tell them this story? It's not just to highlight the darkness in these religious leaders' hearts. But it's ultimately, and for a greater reason, to highlight the radical grace and persistence and patience of God. You see, the darker the darkness, the brighter the light shines, right? If we focus on the tenants, if we focus on ourselves in this story, then we'll be left discouraged. But our focus should be the beauty in this story is ultimately the owner, The owner of the vineyard, merciful, compassionate, abounding in grace and love. The tenants, they they beat up the servant messengers again and again and again. And what does the owner do? He sends another. He gives them another chance, and they ravage that guy too. 
Yet this owner, he keeps pursuing them, even to the point where he sends his son only for the tenants to let him have it. Like if I was the owner, I would give up after the first servant was killed, right? Like, probably not a safe environment to send another guy, right? Like, and after that point, I'd probably go after them myself, right? Like, teach, teach these guys a lesson, right? And when you're reading this parable, like, you see the owner sends another servant and another and another, and it kind of makes you go, like, dude, that, this guy's insane, right? This guy's irrational. And the insanity of it is the point. The insanity of the owner's mercy, of his persistent pursuit, is the point. Jesus is painting a picture of something so radical and so scandalous in the grace of God. He reveals a God of unpredictable grace, a God of sacrificial love who extends every possible avenue of grace before judgment eventually comes. And to be clear, there is a judgment, right? We read it in the text. To be clear, there is a judgment, and we can't miss that harsh reality. There is a judgment for those who ultimately reject all avenues of his grace. But that judgment doesn't come before the omen does, donor does everything in his power to draw them in, to win them over, to win them back to repentance to relationship with him. You see, these same people that Jesus is calling out in Mark chapter 12, these religious leaders, these same people in just a few days, they will be the ones who, even though they heard this parable on this day, they'll be the ones to take Jesus and beat him and drag him to a cross. They're going to shred his back with a whip. They're going to be the guys that press a crown of thorns into his scalp, taking his hands and his feet and pierce them with nails. And even through all of that, does Jesus stop loving them? Does he stop caring for them? Does he stop pursuing them? No, his last words were, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. I love this quote. It's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but it's, it's, it's beautiful from, from J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer says, It is staggering that God should love sinners, yet it is true. God loves creatures, that's you and I, who have become unlovely and unlovable. There was nothing whatever, nothing whatsoever in the objects of his love in us to call it forth, to summon his love. Nothing in man could attract or prompt it. Love among persons is awakened by something in the beloved person, but the love of God is free. The love of God is spontaneous. The love of God is unevoked. The love of God is uncaused, impassable. God loves people because he has chosen to love them, and no reason for his love can be given except his own sovereign good pleasure. 
see in the face of the darkest evil, we see the light of the gospel of grace in the Son of God. And it is that same grace that was offered to the tenants in this parable that God offers to these religious leaders by pursuing them, by revealing why their hearts are so hard, by Jesus' prayer for them on the cross. And it is the same grace that is offered to us today. You see, as we get ready to close, I want you to notice something in verse 10. Jesus seems to make this sort of random, it seems like a random transition from all this vineyard talk to like a building project talk, right? In verse 10, he says, have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's quoting Psalm 118 here. He says, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You see, Jesus calls himself the rejected cornerstone. You know what that is? Back then, the cornerstone was the first and most important piece in any building project, right? The cornerstone needed to be strong. It needed to be straight. It, or if it wasn't, the whole thing would fall apart. The whole building would fall apart. And so builders, they would go through these stones as they're building a building. They would go through stones, and, and they would put to the side anything that didn't fit. Anything that wasn't strong and straight, that wouldn't be a good cornerstone. And when the religious leaders Jesus is talking to, and when we look at Jesus with a hardened heart, we don't see the way that he fits into our lives. We don't see him as the cornerstone that he is. And so we reject him. But in the mysterious ways of our sovereign God and the way that he works, that initial rejection that we'll read about, that initial rejection that sent Jesus to the cross would be what ultimately wins our salvation. This was God's plan and Jesus' mission this whole time. That's why he says in verse 11, this was the Lord's doing. Jesus got rejected because this was God's plan. In the Gospel of John, we're told ultimately that Jesus' life wasn't taken from him. Ultimately, he laid it down for sinners like you and like me. Maybe you're here today and you're like the tenant in this parable. You're in a season of life where you've been resisting God, where you've been rejecting him. I suspect that no matter where you're at on the faith spectrum, like there, there's a little bit of that in all of us. All of us, to some, to some degree, have some area of our lives that we're resistant to God's authority. Our thoughts our finances, our trust in God, our relationship with others, whatever it is for you, are you willing to humbly admit your resistance to his authority? Are you willing to admit your resistance to his authority? And if you are, then don't stay there. Recognize that even in that resistance, God's love is patient and persistent. He's wooing you in and calling you to repentance in a relationship. Maybe you're resisting Jesus because you're, you're afraid of what the cost is of following him. You're not a follower of Jesus and you're afraid of what it means to follow him. Maybe you find yourself realizing like Nietzsche did that there's nothing but emptiness in that ownership mentality. And your heart cries out for more than, than a life that is just centered on yourself. Jesus invites you to receive his grace, to escape that judgment, 
to drink, as the scriptures say, from the well of his grace. And that the Bible says when we do that, when we drink from the well of his grace, that you will never thirst again. Maybe you're here today and you're kind of like, you resonate with the servants that got sent again and again, all right? You're sharing the good news with the people around you that you love, but you get getting in some sense beat up and rejected and shamed. Well, this parable, this message tells us that God will not give up and neither should you. And so press on and, and trust God. Plead and pray to him to soften and open their, their hearts. Just in the last couple of weeks, I've talked to two people who in our church community, who are, who are new to our church community, that after years of resisting and rejecting Jesus have just recently decided that they want to follow him for the first time. Praise God for that, Right? God's grace is persistent. He pursues. His love softens a hardened heart. And for all of us, no matter what part of this story you resonate, for all of us, let's build our lives and this church on the cornerstone. We serve a Savior who will never give up on us. He runs after us until his grace breaks through. The Bible says where sin abounds, grace what? Abounds more. That is the banner that we raise. That is the message that we proclaim and is the song that we sing. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.